0: This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest. Exploring trends that influence the energy business, Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast for May 10th. I'm Jackie Forrest. And hi, I'm
1: Peter Tritsakian. Welcome back. What's the agenda?
0: Well, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground here. We'll talk a bit about global emissions. Then we'll talk about Canada's situation, highlighting some of the uniqueness that Canada has when you look at the sources of emissions that we have, and then look at how Canada's looking in terms of meeting our Paris reduction goals. So Canada signed up to a reduction of 30% compared to a 2005 mm-hmm. baseline. So where are we on that goal and what are the opportunities for reductions in yeah, Canada. and
1: what are the challenges in transitioning our energy systems to this aspirational state? You know, I mean, climate change is a real pressing issue. Uh, it is a defining issue of our time now, and it's getting a lot of momentum. And so we do need to think about how all these energy systems, especially the legacy energy systems, oil, gas, coal, are going to respond.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about climate change. In fact, one of our first podcasts covered that sobering climate report that was released in October of 2018 from the IPCC, the De facto experts at the topic, and they basically raised the alarm that the world needs to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions much more quickly than what's happening. And they're actually saying, you know, it used to be a goal of not having global warming exceed two degrees C, but now they're actually saying one point five degrees C is the threshold because mm-hmm. without, if you go over that threshold, you're going to have a much more severe consequences from a changing climate.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look back at the history. Although we've been talking about climate change for a long time, I like to benchmark it. To- to around 2007, that really impactful UNPCC report that came out then followed by Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. And so in the intervening dozen years, we're 2019 now, not only is our ability to detect the changes with satellite technology and sensor technology improved, like the ability to understand this problem much better has evolved. And so it's not only just about climate changes. is it? I mean, there's all sorts of sustainability issues.
0: Well, yeah, and it seems like it's just a constant news flow now. I think that's one thing that's changed yeah. even in the last five years. I mean, a week doesn't go by no. where there doesn't seem to be some study related to the changing climate and implications. Like this week's was the UN saying that nature is in trouble. There's a lot of species that are... Uh, leaving the planet and that loss is accelerating. And so I think it's keeping um, more in the forefront of people's minds because there seems to be more studies and more information coming out.
1: Well, we're going to talk about the numbers, but there's no question that energy use, which is dominated by fossil fuels, is a lead contributing factor. And I diarized in my second book in 2009, End of Energy Obesity, that uh, there's really two components to this. One is the ever-growing amount of energy we're consuming, top line, of all forms, and that growth line is really not sustainable and has a number of sustainability impacts including climate change but that the composition of the energy mix is a subset of that of that issue and really talking about the need even back then for the demand side to start to transition and the supply side and so on. So, should we talk about some of the numbers and and what the issues are?
0: Well, first for some context, I think many people have heard of this 450 ppm Mm -hmm. uh, number. This is basically the aggregate amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And the idea is that you don't want to get over 450 ppm. Now, So, ppm
1: is like parts per million. Yeah, in the atmosphere. So, this is a carbon dioxide molecule as a fraction of all the, I'll call it air, which is composed of all sorts of elements. But it's 450 ppm parts per million of CO2.
0: And other gases, which we will get into. There are some mm-hmm. other greenhouse gases, but they're all put on a CO2 equivalency basis. Right. Now, today we're at 410 ppm. But as I had just said, there's this new study that says we don't want to get to just 2 degrees. 2 degrees was aligned with the 450 ppm threshold. Right. Now, with a 1.5 degree threshold, you'd actually only want to get to 430. Now, we're at 410 now. We're increasing by 2 to 3 a year, right. so that means in ten years we could reach that goal, and that's part of why you're seeing like the Green New Deal and some of these more extreme policy actions, because there's this view that you have a ten-year window, right? Thinking that you can only get the aggregate emissions to right. that 430 right. level. So
1: the alarm bells are being pulled in earnest. What we have is a situation. I mean, they call it greenhouse gas because effectively, when you hit that 450 ppm level, the scientists tell us that you reach this critical level of warming that will then escalate our global temperatures to two degrees above the pre-industrial revolution baseline.
0: That's right. Yeah. And if you only want 1.5 degrees, then you only want to get to the 430, which gives us even less time to create change.
1: Right. Right. And those incremental temperature changes, small as they are, it doesn't sound like much, a couple of degrees, do have major impacts in terms of what's going on in the Arctic and the melting of the permafrost and the ice sheets et etc et etc mm-hmm.
0: And there have been a number of studies I think that's another part of the news flow at least in the last six months I'd say you know the US had a very important study called the Black Friday report that mm-hmm. looked at how's the environment going to change over time because of warming planet and Environment Canada actually had a report in April of 2019 so fairly recently. And one key conclusion was that Canada is warming faster than the global average because our northern areas are warming faster, and they Mm -hmm. had quite a few implications in that report too. So there's more and more information, as you say, coming out in terms of understanding what the implications are.
1: Yeah, it's understanding. And I, I think we have to make mention that there are many different opinions, but there's now thousands of scientists that are working on this. Each has their view, each has their scenario going forward, and there is a wide range of outcomes. But I think that overall conclusion is that there's no denying that man-made climate change is happening and the level and degree to which it is happening is uh, open to some debate and that overwhelmingly we have to address the issue because we can't continue to be putting the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And, you know, I'll tell you what my personal position has always been, you know, even though I am actually technically an earth scientist, a geophysicist, which is the physics of the earth. I've studied this stuff. I even took university courses in climatology as options. So I get it. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the error bars and the outcomes and and so on that go forward. But there's uh, really no doubt in my mind it's it's happening out there and that we have to uh, work hard to uh, lower these emissions. And uh, it's it's not easy. And it's certainly not easy in this country.
0: No, and we're going to talk about that, like what are the emission profiles and where are the opportunities for reductions. But let's talk a little bit about the emissions annually to get one to two more points in PPM each year growing mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. We're adding about 49,200 megatons of CO2 per year. To give you a perspective of who's admitting it, China today is about 26% of all of the emissions annually. The U.S. is 13%, and Canada is Mm 1.4%. So relatively small amount in the aggregate, but still we have committed to targets like many of these other countries with the exception, I guess, of the U.S., who's talking about pulling out of Paris, but officially has not pulled out of Paris right, yet.
1: Right. And so, you know, I mean, the argument goes that uh, we're only 1.4 percent emissions and uh, therefore we're not consequential. OK. You know, we we can debate that. But here's a here's bigger thing is uh, I think on the positive side is that, OK, we are, as I published uh, again last week, the – Influence that we have on the world stage. We are the fifth largest producer of oil and gas in the in the world right now. So what we do is actually consequential. And I think there's a positive story, which we're going to come to in terms of how we can and actually how we are actively working to reduce our emissions and make a positive impact in this problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And show leadership. And show leadership. Um, Okay, let's talk a little bit about the makeup of the emissions. Sometimes people talk about CO2. CO2 Mm -hmm. is a big part of it. 65% of all greenhouse gases emitted in a year, but it's not the only greenhouse gas. There's methane and nitrous oxide and fluorinated gases. So there are other components. And some of these other components have a different effect on the climate. For instance, methane, which has come under a lot of scrutiny because the oil and gas industry emits methane, but so does the agricultural industry, actually has 70 times more effect on the warming for the first 20 years that it's in the atmosphere than CO2 does. And so some of these other greenhouse gases are very important to address as well. Right.
1: So methane basically is natural gas, right? That's right. And for the chemically inclined CH4, one carbon, four hydrogen molecules, comes from not only natural gas and leaky pipes, but also comes from agricultural sources. Yeah, that's right. As- Livestock
0: waste, decomposition from landfills, decomposition mm. from wetlands. So there are right, other sources. Right, right. But the oil and gas industry, that's one area where there's been a lot of focus recently because
1: right.
0: you know, that is an area that you can address those emissions without sort of changing what you're right. doing.
1: So what you're saying is that the methane molecule as compared to the carbon dioxide molecule has, what did you say, 25 times? Well, over
0: 100 years, it's anywhere between 28 and 36, depending on how they measure it. But over a 20-year time period, it's actually 70 times more effect. The methane molecule, most of it is actually gone within a decade. has the good news. Yeah, the good news. But it has a greater effect for those years than a CO2 molecule.
1: So from the Earth's perspective, it's like a much thicker blanket. Uh, but that it dissipates faster.
0: Yeah, and so the good thing is if we actually got serious about methane emissions, Mm -hmm. we could have a greater effect on near-term warming. The thing with CO2 is it stays in the atmosphere a really long time. In fact, about half of the CO2 that was admitted in the early parts of the industrial evolution in the UK, the first Mm -hmm. coal power plants and the coal engines that were, were lit up, that half of that CO2 still is in the atmosphere today. So the problem with CO2 is we can make changes in CO2 today, but it's not going to affect the climate for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So methane is actually important and right. some of the other ones as but well.
1: Interestingly, I mean, uh, there's a lot going on here. I'm just, we're going to talk more about Canada in a minute, but it's That actually is probably one of the easiest things to solve, isn't it? It it's kind of low-hanging fruit to fix leaky pipes.
0: The methane. Yes, we'll talk about that, especially in the oil and gas industry. And Mm -hmm. I think there's even some opportunities in agriculture as well.
1: Right. Move on to the sources of emissions. So 65%?
0: 65% of all those emissions come from burning hydrocarbons. So primarily natural gas, coal. Mm oil. Right. And as you know, 80% of all the energy in the world is coming from the hydrocarbons. So it is quite a problem. It's not easy to change.
1: So let's pause there for a second, because I think this is a really important point that we've mentioned before. Uh, I use the line, actually, fossil fuels don't emit anything. It's people who burn fossil fuels that emit, and they emit 80% of the problem, because only actually less than 20% comes in the upstream sector. So you know, this is why I think that there is a large consumer-side bias to this. That's not to excuse trying to improve the upstream, Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll talk about. But, you know, this is the complexity of the problem because the further downstream you go into the consumer and downstream into individual consumption habits, that's where... In many ways, the biggest difference can make, but it's also the differences that can potentially impede your lifestyle, which is why things like end-use carbon taxes and things are so contentious.
0: Yeah, so if you could imagine a barrel of oil and all the emissions associated with making that and using it, 20% would come from extracting it, refining it, getting
1: it to— The car. Right, the pump. The, the pump. The, the pump yep. nozzle, basically.
0: And then 80% is actually when you fire up your car and it comes mm-hmm. up in the tailpipe. So in order to really address climate change, we ultimately have to stop demanding as much oil. Right. And that's why I get quite frustrated with some of these actions being taken to shut down pipelines or just cut off the supply because – that is in itself going to deal with eighty percent of the problem. no we should be focused on things that reduce demand, whether it be more efficient vehicles or electric cars or whatever.
1: yeah, right? and I know that you know people within the oil and gas industry are a little you know unnerved by that because say, well, if the demand is going to roll over, which I believe it will sometime in the next fifteen years. That oh boy, that's a big problem. And I say no, it isn't a big problem because you know we're still going to be consuming a huge amount, even when the demand side rolls over. Right. And really, the question isn't how much are we going to consume. Uh, the question is who should supply it. Who are the best actors, the best producers in the world that abide by the best and most stringent regulations and have the lowest carbon intensity upstream. Those are the people. Uh, and I'd like to think that Canada's moving in that direction. Those are the the, mm-hmm. the producers that should be supplying this stuff.
0: Yeah, if we're going to need oil, we might right. as well have the oil that produces the less emissions. Right. Let, let's move to talk about Canada's emission goals and how... The makeup of our emissions makes reductions a little more challenging in some areas. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put a link on the show notes to a table that will show you the amount of emissions from the United States and Canada and the percentage from each source, whether it be electricity or transportation. And so we're going to use a few numbers here, but you'll be able to look at this table. The reason we're comparing to the United States is it really does highlight a number of unique parts of Canada's greenhouse gas emission profile that are worth pointing out when we think about how Canada can make reductions targets that they've signed up to with Paris.
1: Right. You want to talk about electricity? Because yeah. that, that, that's the place where you know we, we want to move toward greater electrification, and it is in the electricity market, the centralized power plants like the coal-fired power plants that can be swapped out with really no impact on the consumer. I mean, the consumer doesn't know where their electricity is coming from.
0: Yeah, yeah. like you just have to uh, change the electrons where they're coming from, but the whole infrastructure works the same. People do things the same. It's one of the easiest areas to change. Uh, It's
1: one of the highest carbon intensity areas, like a coal-fired power plant. And if it switches out in the background, the consumer doesn't even know it happened.
0: And they don't have to change any of their equipment or things that use electricity. So this is where Canada and the U.S. are very different. In Canada, 11% of all of our emissions come from electricity generation, where in the United States, it's 30%. And so why is that? Well, the U.S. has a much more high-carbon power system. They rely on a lot of coal still today. So for coal power generation in the U.S., it's about 30% of all electricity coming from coal power, where in Canada, ours is only 9% coming from coal. And 80% of the power in Canada comes from zero emission sources.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing is it's a good news, bad news story. I mean, 80% is zero carbon. Why? Because we have so much hydro. That's right. That's That's why Canadians,
0: instead of saying they have a power bill, they say, can you check out my hydro bill?
1: Yeah, if you're in BC or, or Quebec, you say, where's your hydro bill? Why? Because in those two provinces... Almost 100 percent of your electricity comes from hydro, and it's zero emission. And you know, contrast that with Alberta, Saskatchewan, where we have a high concentration of our electricity generated by fossil fuels, coal and natural gas. And you know, this leads to the issue of what geopolitics, right? Geo meaning geography. Politics, we know what that is. (laughs) So (laughs) geopolitics is understanding the differences in the geographic regions. We in Alberta and Saskatchewan grew our society over the last hundred plus years by virtue of what was underneath our feet, which was coal and natural gas fire generation. B.C., Ontario, Manitoba, places like that grew up on hydro. Right now, today, we're asked as a country, as a whole to reduce our emissions from electrical power well guess where it has to come from it has to come from alberta saskatchewan dominantly a little bit in ontario it's uh, actually they've 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 removed a fair bit of it mm-hmm. some in the maritimes but they're a low population a much smaller economy so the bulk of the focus is here
0: yes exactly and to give it a perspective of you know for many countries they look more like the power system of the united states where 30% or so of all their emissions are coming from electricity. To put it in perspective, if the U.S. was going to commit to their Paris target, which maybe they will again, depending on who gets Mm -hmm. reelected, they can't actually officially pull out of the Paris Agreement until a day after the next presidential election. So still to be determined if they're going to pull out. (laughs) But if they could go to zero carbon electricity, or even maybe 80% like Canada, that would get the most of the way to their Paris target. Right. So they don't have to make any other changes yeah. that are difficult. They yeah, can no just Yeah, no changes substitute. at the consumer
1: level, as we said before.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, they can substitute out. Now, I know there's limited options yeah. for zero emissions, but let's say they went all nuclear and renewables and storage. They could actually make their target just focusing on the power. Where Canada, if we were to switch out our coal power plants in Western Canada all for natural gas, which is – you know the plan. I know we're doing more renewables, but just mm-hmm. for for calculations, let's say that that would get us fifteen percent of our Paris target. Yeah, so- this is a
1: problem. This is a problem. I mean, as I said, it's a good news, bad news. It's a good news that we're already eighty percent decarbonized in our electrical grid, uh, but it's the bad news is, is that the opportunity to do centralized, I would call low hanging fruit substitutions of coal into mm-hmm. renewables. So yeah. you know, this is uh, this is a major difference between ourselves and. Other OECD, basically the wealthy countries in the world, the most industrialized countries in the world. Not only that, but that it is geographically not equal here in this country. In other words, we have polarization because the bulk of that centralized swapping out has to come from here.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. 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 Now, another difference, talking about not having equal across the country, is industrial emissions. So, Canada, 42% of all of our emissions come from industry, where in the United States, only 22%. Right. So, we're about double uh, what the United States is. And where are industrial emissions coming from? They're coming from refining, steel making, petrochemicals, manufacturing. And in the case of Canada, a lot of them are coming from oil and gas production.
1: Right. How uh, much is that? What is that like?
0: Well, just oil and gas alone is about 60% of all of those emissions, about 183 megatons, uh, is coming from our oil and gas sector. And our oil and gas sector is still growing the production, and so the emissions have been on the rise.
1: Okay, so let's pause because there's a lot of numbers being thrown out. So out of all the emissions that Canada produces right now, how much is in the industrial section as a whole?
0: 42% of
1: all. 42% of all. And of the 42%, 60% comes from oil and gas. That's right. Which is dominantly oil sands. Would well, you, say? you know, mm-hmm.
0: actually, about half of those emissions come from oil sands, and half come from the 50-50. non-oil sand okay. side of the industry. Right around okay. that.
1: Okay. So that's why the focus is so much again. You know, we talked about electrical power being focused here. Now, by virtue of where our how our economy has grown in the West, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we have to also cut in the industrial section, which is dominantly here.
0: Right, and we're still seeing increases in our. I mean, in fact, the Canadian government just released. uh, We're we're all talking about twenty sixteen numbers, which seems a bit odd, but that's how lagged the data is. But we just got twenty seventeen numbers, and Alberta emissions went up. Right, most of the rest of Mm -hmm. the country had flat to slightly declining emissions, and part of that is because we're still growing our production of oil and gas.
1: Right, but I, I think it's really important for our listeners to recognize that the geopolitics, you know, the polarization that we're witnessing in this country right now is largely a function of the geography and the geology, right? I mean, if you look at the pattern of industrialization in the Western world over the course of the last 300 years, and even what you see today in terms of emerging economies, the first energy source you use is the cheapest one that's underneath your feet. Right. Then you grow your economy and your entrenched energy systems evolve accordingly. Then all of a sudden you have some existential or environmental threat or some other issue. And then you realize, okay, how am I going to fix this issue? It's tough. Mm-hmm. Right. Because this is what's entrenched in the way that you evolved over the course of the last hundred years plus.
0: Yeah. And it's a bit broader because not only do we use it to supply our own energy needs, but we've created a business of exporting it to oh. other countries. So yeah. we export most of our crude oil. And, and we're not unique. If you look at the United States, by the way, I said that their industrial emissions are half of ours, but I expect, you know, that's 2016 data. Yeah. So by the time we get 2019 data, I expect their industrial emissions will be up quite a bit because they've been really growing their oil and gas production. As Huge. Many, we've talked about it on yeah, the podcast before, right? Yeah, your, firmian, before, your right? Visit, yeah. Yeah, so I mean they've increased since 2016 when the latest inventory data is. They've increased their gas production 14 BCF per day. That's like almost equal to the Canadian industry. Right. Altogether. Right. And oil production 3 million barrels a day. That's almost equal to the oil sands.
1: It's it's just ridiculous. We took oil sands production growth to zero to where it is today. I mean, it's it's taken... The bulk of it is in the last 20, 25 years, and they did it in the span of, what, three, Three four, years. This three is three years. years of growth.
0: So I'm just yeah. saying that their industrial emissions are going to go up. They are. and They you know, I talked about them having the opportunity with the power, but they are going to see growth in, in because of their oil supply growth, and that's a bit of what we're seeing. Now, the opportunity, though, in Canada is there is some low-hanging fruit here in terms of reducing well, sure. our oil and gas emissions. And one of the best areas, we talked about methane a bit earlier, but we have about 45 megatons. And to put it in perspective, our Paris – goal is to reduce by about 200 megatons from today. Mm-hmm. So a quarter of our goal could be done, but if we could get rid of all our methane emissions.
1: Upstream, uh, like this is not the production. In the, oil and gas in the oil and gas industry.
0: Now, the target right now is only to get rid of half, and I'm saying going to zero emissions might be difficult, but there is an opportunity there for the oil and gas industry to really focus on these methane emissions and make a big change in terms of uh, the total emissions. Today, with the policies that are in place, that would get us, you know, not all the way there, because it's only going to reduce about half of them. Mm-hmm. But it, it could basically be about 10% of our Paris target with yeah. the rules we have. Yeah, in and place. I think
1: this notion, I mean, you know, the cliched phrase that you just used, low-hanging fruit, is so important. Like, we have to make sure that we are targeting the easiest sources of emission first. Yeah, to put Uh, it in perspective,
0: this is stuff like changing valves, capturing emissions from tank tops. It's not like technology doesn't exist to do these things. Right. And we can continue doing the economic activity of producing oil and gas. We don't have to change our economy, but we can just make sure that we don't have this methane. And most of these emission reductions are in the range of $20 or $30 per ton or less. The point is that these are not the most expensive things to go after. They don't have to change the makeup of our economy.
1: Well, and And, uh, importantly, they don't affect the end consumer.
0: Yeah. And so, like I said, methane. Methane rules could be 10% of our 2030 Paris target. I actually expect, you know, the government has a plan right now to reduce by 45% by 2025. Uh, looking at the limited other opportunities we have in Canada, I expect that there might be even more stringent rules beyond mm-hmm. that threshold because right. this is an area that can make a difference in terms of the numbers and doesn't have the same costs as some other emissions that Canada could try to reduce.
1: You, you know, I know that you and I have seen companies actually make dramatic reductions in field methane reductions, right? So this is this is not uh, theoretical stuff, like even over the course of the last couple of years, right?
0: No, it's not. And there's even more companies voluntarily committing, yeah. and including companies outside of Canada, to trying to go to very low or even zero methane if they could. And one part about methane that's difficult is that things are always leaking, and so there has to be some detection. So you mm-hmm. can cap, you can figure out where it's leaking and deal with it right away. But these technologies are pretty much there, or if not, they're very close to being there. And so I do expect this is an opportunity for Canada. You know, by us dealing with our methane emissions, not only will we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and help meet our target, but we can actually create economic growth for Canada. Because if we get really good at this, why can't we export this to other countries that will also be looking at this as one of the low-hanging fruit for addressing their emission targets?
1: You know, I recently gave presentations to both the wind and the solar industry associations here in Canada. I so, you know, your biggest opportunity actually is here in Alberta and to a lesser degree in Saskatchewan, uh, which has a smaller oil and gas industry. But, you know, you both Alberta and Saskatchewan, as we said earlier, have the potential substitution of the coal. Uh, so that's a no brainer. But the more interesting and higher value opportunity is the greening of the upstream oil and gas business by electrifying remote areas with uh, renewable energy sources.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And be dramatically solar, wind, or solar hydro, wind. and then we yeah. could actually make our emissions even lower. So right. I think there's an opportunity for these industrial emissions to be reduced, and there's lots of innovative things we can well,
1: do. You know, on the, on, the, on the BC front, and we're going to talk about LNG here in a second too, right? I mean, as, as a, I mean, they're trying, you can see what they're doing in terms of even their branding. They have a lot of hydro, as I said, almost 100% of their grid is decarbonized already by virtue of hydroelectric power. So now they're going to bring more of that hydroelectric power into the natural gas producing regions of northeast BC to effectively have much lower, if not net zero emissions up there. And then it's going to go into the LNG, the uh, LNG Canada, Mm -hmm. the $40 billion project, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're already starting to pitch the narrative of the greenest LNG in the world.
0: That's right. And then our LNG can displace not only coal, but other sources of LNG that would have had more emissions in, in the atmosphere. We'll talk about LNG at the end, but let's keep going through the sources of emissions from Canada and the U.S. Now, many other sources are very similar. Buildings, about 12% for both Canada and the U.S. Agriculture is about 10%. That's from the methane associated with agriculture as well as land use and application of fertilizer creates GHG emissions.
1: So there's like the bovine flatulation.
0: I don't, know, I don't know that technical term, actually. <laughs> like cows farting? Yeah, okay, yeah, that's you got the term. It, yeah. Okay, so then the other piece is when we have cattle, they also change the land use quite a bit. Sure. So that's another effect that comes from agriculture. U.S. transportation is a bit higher than us, but it's similar, 28% for driving around versus 24% in Canada. One thing that is quite different is the land use in forestry. So When you total up all the emissions in an economy, at the very end, each country gets a credit for land use and forestry off the total because land and trees absorb CO2. So if you have more land and trees absorbing CO2, you get a credit for that. Yeah,
1: the lungs of the earth, right? Yeah,
0: Yeah. and and this is one thing that's quite different between Canada and the U.S., and I kind of scratched my head a bit. So on an absolute basis, they get almost 20 times more credit for land use than we do.
1: So basically they're getting credit for more trees.
0: Yeah, except our land area must be bigger uh, than yeah. the Americans. we have lots of trees right. too. Yeah, Yeah. so I did some digging into this and I've been told it's because there was a historical baseline that was made mm-hmm. and that you only got credit from changes from that point and the Americans made more changes than we did. Yeah. But to me, that seems like an opportunity that we could look at land use and planting yeah. trees and...
1: Maybe lobby the, the UN and whatever agreements that we're in. You know, I'm not privy to all the negotiations, but it strikes me... From looking at the situation and our discussions that we should be getting more credit for our, quote, carbon sinks. In other words, the ability to absorb carbon based on our, again, geographic extent of our foliage.
0: Mm -hmm. We have a huge boreal forest. We have lots of wetlands. And if we could do things to um, help restore them or make them larger or not Mm -hmm. have them go away, that should all get credits. To give you an idea, like this nature-based solutions and conserving of land can make a huge impact on the greenhouse gas emissions. I'm going to reference a paper which I could put a link to in our show notes. Nature Conservancy Mm -hmm. released a report a couple of years ago, and it basically said the world could get 37% of the way to meeting the Paris goals for less than $100 a ton, we talked about the price Mm -hmm. of that, just by using land and Forestry and things like that, so just reforestation, a, right. changes to agriculture, restoring wetlands that hold CO two, and so there's a huge opportunity here, not just building equipment or changing power plants, in using nature right. to so planting help more solve trees. I know
1: some of the, uh, the multinational oil companies are looking at that, right, where they're basically trying to get closer to net zero emissions in the upstream by planting trees in places like the tropics where trees grow fast and they absorb a lot of CO two.
0: Yeah, Eni actually committed to being net zero by, I think it was 2030, Mm -hmm. and it was a combination of dealing with the methane
1: that we just talked about. That's the Italian national oil company. Yeah, that's right, E&I.
0: And then also tree planting. They're going to plant an area the size of New Brunswick in Mm -hmm. Africa and get credits for that. And Yale um, just put out an article that's very interesting that said the world, if they could plant 1.2 trillion trees, they could cancel out 10 years of CO2. 1.2
1: 1.2 trillion. Okay, but that's a lot. Okay, well, today ahead. we have three trillion trees. <laughs> okay, right. So
0: it is a lot. But do you ever they have a said, summer
1: job planting trees? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Apparently, they're going to get drones to do it in the future. So okay, maybe we right. can do it more efficiently. But basically, they were saying that this can be done without impacting forest space with existing forest space. No need to use urban or agricultural land that we right. use today. Right. So they think it's doable. So I just think this is an opportunity for Canada to yeah. really dig into what we can do. Uh, well, I
1: mean, the point of- is is that nature-based solutions such as tree planting and land conservation, et cetera, et cetera, can help a lot that we should try and get credit for it and encourage that kind of thing because we have a lot of land and one of the lowest population densities in the world.
0: Let's go then to how Canada is doing in meeting the Paris Agreement. So in January 2019, Environment Canada issued a report talking about our progress towards meeting this goal. And they have a reference case, which is basically everything we've done already, which is basically the methane rules Mm -hmm. and the rules to get rid of coal-fired power plants over time. They basically project that Canada could actually not really change much from today. We'd be pretty flat from where we are now to 2030 if we didn't do any other actions. And that kind of makes sense, right? We talked about methane could be 10% of reduction and the power plants could be maybe another 15, but we're still growing our industrial emissions. So I would agree if we don't do anything else, we're probably very flat and we're not going to get very far towards that goal.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not without actually cutting into... said the sort of the the end consumer broad societal behavioral issues.
0: Right. And so the government has has future policies that they are working on today that they believe will actually get us to the goal. Mm -hmm. So basically they expect a fair amount of emissions will come from the – Pan Canadian framework, which is basically mm-hmm. the carbon price that's yeah. $50 per ton that's being implemented. They have a clean fuel standard. They're putting in new building codes. And they think that that can get us a big way, almost 40% of the needed reduction between now and Yeah, the building is fairly
1: large. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't rule out what can be done in the upstream vis a vis things like the oil sands and others, because, you know, we've talked about it in other shows that actually it's not government policy as much as the financial institutions are putting a lot of pressure on the these, these companies saying, you know, your availability of capital is going to be dependent upon your carbon intensity and your environmental, social safety, governance performance. And I think that many leading companies are moving forward on this. I think that there's some surprises in terms of what can happen on the industrial side, especially as it relates to the industry over here.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and the government has actually got 40% of the reductions, what they're calling unmodeled actions. And part of that is the clean tech investing that they're doing, public transportation investing. But I would say, you know, the industrial emissions coming down through clean tech investing and clean tech investing, we've talked about it before, but it's ways to clean up oil and gas. um, It's ways to clean up even
1: agriculture and so on. And I think that's another area that is potentially underestimated in terms of what I would call the technology in other words, the dividends from applying, in this case, from for emissions, from applying technologies that are accelerating faster than we think. And so there's a lot going on in that clean tech space. This is getting a lot of momentum, and we'll probably revisit that in a future podcast yet again. But it's uh, it's very interesting what's going on there.
0: Okay. And then there's obviously the land use. Uh, Actually, they they have a very small credit for land use, 24 million metric tons. So who's this, the government? This is the government. government, So I'm thinking like maybe there's an opportunity there uh, through conserving land, through planting more trees to to boost that number. One thing that they don't talk about that I think is a great opportunity to reduce our emissions is looking at LNG. Now- LNG in general, you'd think growing a new industry like LNG would be negative. Mm-hmm. We had Susanna Pierce on our show on February 23rd, and she talked about the fact that, yes, there are about 4 million tons per year going to be generated from this LNG facility. And then there's some so upstream there's, emissions uh, as well. a liquefied
1: natural gas facility in Kitimat. In oh, Kitimat on the yeah. West Coast.
0: Yeah. LNG Canada. But at the same time, LNG Canada is actually displacing a lot of emissions because when that natural gas goes to China, it's mm-hmm. going to replace coal-fired power. And they estimate that it will displace 60 to 90 million tons per year. To put that in perspective, that would be, on the high side, almost half of all the emissions we need to reduce between now and 2030 if we could get credit for that reduction.
1: No, it's huge. We can make a huge contribution internationally. And so herein lies the sort of the issues of jurisdictional or regional adherence to things like the Paris Agreement versus sort of thinking about the world as a whole when it comes to climate change and you know how do we account for our contribution to China's reductions. The Chinese will say, well, we should get credit for that. We should get credit for that. What did you say? 90 megatons. Mm -hmm. And Canadians say, well, wait a minute, we supplied those 90, so we should get credit. There's something in the Paris Agreement called Article 6, which is supposed to sort these things out, but it's still not fully resolved in terms of the negotiations.
0: Yeah, it's an important yet to be determined part of the agreement. Um, It was talked about in the December 2018 meeting uh, in Poland, Mm -hmm. and there were concerns about double counting and people wanting credits for past projects but, you know, my point here is, is, what's wrong with double counting? If the goal is to get less CO2 put into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. let's create the right incentives so that everybody's like, you know, rowing the well, boat in the same we're direction.
1: working together, right, yeah. from a, from an international community perspective.
0: Yeah. So we're motivated as Canada to grow our LNG industry and make it the lowest carbon in the world. And that provides supply that will displace coal faster than if we weren't motivated. Right. Because today, to be honest, you know the discussion in Canada, the worries about increasing the emissions are such that people don't want to grow uh, some of these industries, which would have a benefit if you looked at it on a global scale.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if we can actually work constructively towards solutions that are upstream in the oil and gas business to go hopefully even to net zero emissions or even absolute zero in some instances uh, of some of these producers, and then you can displace high carbon intensity fuels like coal in other parts of the world. Then that's a really a win-win situation, not only for the countries that are working together, but also for the planet as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. And back to that tree uh, planting, it is actually quite a bit uh, more economical to plant trees in tropical areas. They grow faster, they absorb mm-hmm. more carbon. So there's another idea where international sure. offsets would be great. Why don't we get credit for planting trees in areas where they can have a bigger impact on the climate yeah. faster than maybe in Canada, where it takes many years for yeah. a tree to grow and absorb yeah. carbon?
1: I'm on board with that, I'm a little skeptical about uh, summer students planting 1.2 trillion trees, so we'll see. That's (laughs) right. The drones better come in and help out with that one. So where are we at?
0: Okay, let's wrap up. We've got lots of numbers. We'll post the table with the numbers. I think the key messages we want to leave people with is that Canada does have less easy levers to make the 2030 target. But there are some great opportunities, whether it be the land use one that we talked about Uh, Getting more emissions out of the oil and gas sector and methane being the easiest one, but maybe some more lower intensity oil and gas as well. And this great opportunity we have if we could find a way to get recognition uh, internationally for our offsets.
1: Yeah, and I think we need to get over the geopolitics as we talked about, as you know, recognize that our country was built since Confederation regionally based on what energy sources were underneath our feet. Now we've grown to where we are today. We need to look forward and we need to work together to optimize not only our internal energy systems, but work through international agreements like the Paris agreements, Article 6, et cetera, to work globally and act as leaders. So actually, you know, on balance, I think that I'm fairly positive we can make a positive impact going forward.
0: Good. Well, and thanks everyone for listening. This was a little longer episode, but we had lots to cover. We do want to tell you that we won't be having a podcast next week because of the May long weekend. We all want to go camping in in the snow. Hopefully it won't be snowy. So we're going to take a break, but we will be back on May 24th with our next podcast.
1: Yeah, look forward to being with you again.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on your app, leave a comment, we read them all, and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.